1: If you have a stock market that's booming, and disproportionately stocks, of course, are owned by wealthier people, and you have a, a real economy that is hurting, and the people who are hurting most in it are the less skilled, that, to me, is not a recipe for social harmony.
0: That's Zanny Minton-Bettos. She's an acclaimed journalist and the editor-in-chief of The Economist, the weekly international periodical that's been around since 1843. Beddoes has been writing for The Economist since 1994, when she joined as an emerging markets correspondent. She became editor-in-chief in in 2015 and is the first woman ever to hold the position. Now based in London, Beddoes was ranked among Forbes' 100 Most Powerful Women for 2018, and she's a regular financial correspondent and expert for major news networks. Beddoes joins me this week to talk about running an international paper from home, the realities of a post COVID economy, and why she invited Steve Bannon to debate her on stage at the Economist's Open Future Festival. Plus, she gives young people some advice for entering the workforce during a recession. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This is Bart Bonehorst in Plano, Texas. Love your podcast. I have a quick question. With the Supreme Court going to oral arguments over the phone, why don't they use a, a video type application? Because that nonverbal communication is so important. Eli had, uh, Eli Honig had a, a write up about that, but he didn't really answer the question of why they didn't go to a video and started adding in that nonverbal communication as well. It seems to me so essential in order to have true dialogue and and discussion and discovery. And of course, the security piece is is an argument we're all aware of. But what are your thoughts? Thanks. Bart, thank you for your question. You know, there's been a long-term debate over the issue of whether or not Supreme Court arguments should be videotaped and in real time. Only very recently have Supreme Court arguments even been able to be live-streamed by audio in the midst of the COVID pandemic. I might have mentioned this before, but when I worked in the Senate, every Congress basically Senator Schumer and Senator Arlen Specter on the Republican side would put in bills to require or allow at least the videotaping of courtroom proceedings, including the district court, the appeals court, and also the Supreme Court. My personal view continues to be that the most appropriate videotaping of courtroom proceedings is in the Supreme Court, where there are no witnesses who are testifying who can be intimidated by being on television or on a video, where the quality of the argumentation is pretty high where members of the Supreme Court are even more insulated than members of other courts because they're the highest court in the land and they have the final word on the law. So there's not a lot of good reason, in my mind, for not having video, live video, of Supreme Court arguments. But for a long time, members of the court have been opposed to that, in particular, the current Chief Justice, John Roberts. So I suppose that has a lot to do with why you're not getting video streaming now, that there's a view on the part of Justice Roberts and perhaps others that it would create something of a spectacle. I know that Justice Scalia also was always against videotaping of Supreme Court arguments, and that probably lingers on to this day. I do take your point that, at least in the ordinary course, members of the court themselves, even if they were not allowing videotaping, they're at least in the courtroom when courtroom proceedings were allowed to happen before the pandemic. So my guess is it's a legacy from their belief that videotaping alters people's behavior. Also, there might be a security concern, as I think you mentioned. And it also may be the case that Supreme Court justices They want everyone to see into their homes, like we're seeing with respect to contributors on cable television who always sit in front of a bookcase or in their immaculate kitchens on television. You may have seen or read that one recent Supreme Court argument a few weeks ago, there was heard on the audio a flushing of a toilet. And as Ann Milgram and I discussed on the Insider Podcast, someone did some analysis and, you know, pseudo-investigation to determine if it was in fact a Supreme Court justice who during a Supreme Court oral argument used the facility and her conclusion was yes and so maybe i mean this mostly facetiously maybe the supreme court justices want to be able to multitask and videotaping would harm that ability this question comes in an email from claire lynn sexton who writes hi preet long time listener first time caller claire this is an email it's not a call anyway claire goes on to say i love your show and look forward to it every week thank you so much for all that you do question in regards to prisoners, i.e. Paul Manafort, getting released early from prisons and jails due to concerns over the virus. Do the inmates have to return at a later date to serve the remainders of their sentences? Well, that's a good question. And there are a lot of questions swirling around the compassionate early release of people who have been sentenced to prison terms because of the pandemic and fears about prison facilities and jail facilities becoming, you know, epicenters of of virus because they're closed environments and it's very hard to protect against it. And you don't have all sorts of uh, separation ability, of course in a correctional facility. With respect to Paul Manafort, my understanding is he does not have to return to serve the remainder of his sentence. You'll recall that he got a seven and a half year sentence from a federal district court judge and was serving that time in a prison in Western Pennsylvania. His lawyers made the argument that Manafort is 71 years old and he has various conditions that are not good if you come into contact with the coronavirus. They argue that he has high blood pressure, liver disease, and respiratory ailments. He was also hospitalized, in fact, at the end of last year because of a, quote-unquote, cardiac event. So it's my understanding that Paul Manafort, whether you like it or not, will not be returning to prison. Now, with respect to other people, and there have been several thousand released early because of the pandemic, there is no standard operating procedure. It's not written in stone anywhere that a released inmate has to come back. So it seems on a case-by-case basis, some wardens are saying with respect to some prisoners that they go home and are on home confinement, essentially just wearing an ankle bracelet, and never come back. In other cases, the wardens are saying, well, you're basically furloughed for a period of time, and when circumstances change or the pandemic eases, you have to come back and serve out the rest of your sentence back in the facility. Now, one of the things that has been controversial about this and that maybe calls it to mind is that Paul Manafort, obviously, close associate of the President of the United States, and it looks from the perspectives of some people that maybe Paul Manafort didn't really meet all the guidelines and all the criteria and is getting favorable treatment. This has been sort of a moving target, but there have been guidelines that suggest you have to have served... 25% 25% or 50% of your sentence before you're eligible for this kind of release. And Paul Manafort obviously has not come close to serving 50% of his sentence. I still expect and believe and hope that the Bureau of Prisons remains as independent as when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's a part of the Justice Department. But look, these are legitimate questions to ask, not because there's any specific evidence in these cases that I'm aware of, but because we've seen time and time again people getting involved in the minutiae of a case, whether it's Roger Stone's sentence or it's Michael Flynn's guilty plea because they are associates of the president. And so I think it would be reasonable to ask these questions and get some answers and get some assurances that there's no favorable treatment. But I don't, I'm not making that accusation or allegation. I don't see any evidence of it. This question comes in an email from Mary Lou Barrero, who asks, my question is around the role of Christopher Ray in regards to A.G. Barr's actions around the Flynn case, Roger Stone's case, and much more. Do you think he, meaning Chris Ray, is safe in his job? He seems undermined all the time by bar, by politically motivated actions. How does he keep the troops' respect in terms of his leadership and the continued messaging around protecting the rule of law? So that's a great question, Mary Lou. And a lot of people have been wondering about the position of Christopher Ray. I have said for a long time now that one of the few people that I see at the absolute top of the leadership in law enforcement in the country is Chris Ray. I think he has balanced himself pretty well by not necessarily running afoul of the president or Bill Barr, but at the same time, standing up for his troops, standing up for the FBI as an institution, but also not being afraid to admit errors. With respect to the IG report on the use of the FISA court and FISA applications relating to Carter Page, but not exclusively to Carter Page, Chris Ray I think, took the bull by the horns and has set in place a number of reforms, taken responsibility for some of what was done obviously laid some responsibility on the, at the feet of the people who preceded him. I think he's been wise to stay out of the, the the limelight and keep his head down and support his troops in the ways he can. So I think probably it's the case, and I've talked to some people from time to time, that within the FBI, Chris Ray is respected and in any ordinary universe would be seen to be doing a good job and would keep his job, notwithstanding the fact that the FBI does make mistakes from time to time. You're right to express some concern about the level of his job safety. There have been some members of the president's party in the Congress who have been kind of critical of Ray because he has not joined the, the sort of rhetorical stampede against some of the people who are involved in the Russia investigation. In the last few weeks, Representative Jim Jordan, Republican, and Mike Johnson sent Ray a pretty critical letter asking for documents from the FBI concerning the origins of that interview with Michael Flynn, that is the subject of a lot of controversy itself. He seems not to have responded yet. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, said just a few weeks ago something that's, I think, kind of ominous. He said, quote, I'm not calling on Trump to make a change, but I think the FBI needs to show more energy in terms of solving some of these internal problems. They need to up their game. Now, Bill Barr was interviewed and has expressed support for Chris Ray, And I think his language is, is pretty strong on that, although it's not 100%. But most importantly, the president of the United States, the one who makes these decisions, has sounded a bit of a skeptical note about Chris Ray. Well, a lot of things are going to be uh, told over the next couple of weeks, and let's see what happens. He was appointed by Rod Rosenstein, and uh, a lot of things are coming out. You'll see a lot of things coming out. And recommended by Chris Christie, right? It's disappointing. Uh, he was recommended by Chris, uh, but he was uh, he was appointed by, he was really recommended by Rod Rosenstein, and Chris uh, said, fine. Let's see what happens with him. Look, the uh, the jury's still out with regard to that, but it would have been a lot easier if he came out rather than skirting and going through, you know, 19 different ways except through the FBI. So let's see. And let's You know, it seems that the president does not like people who merely do their job and keep their head down. He likes a lot of genuflection, I think, and getting on the bandwagon and sounding the right notes that he sounds, especially about the Russia investigation. So when he was interviewed, Trump referred to Ray saying he was appointed by Rod Rosenstein which is, of course, not true. He was appointed by President Trump. And Trump says, it's disappointing. He, meaning Chris Ray, was recommended by Chris Christie, but he was appointed by, he was really recommended by Rod Rosenstein. And Chris said, fine, meaning Chris Christie, let's see what happens with him. And the president says, look, the jury's still out with regard to that. But it would have been a lot easier if he came out rather than skirting and going through, you know, 19 different ways, except through the FBI, to get these documents in connection with what happened with Michael Flynn and the Russia investigation. So we've seen this before. He may keep his job. He may not. I think it's a it's a weird time to try to get another FBI director through confirmation. The president has said on other occasions that he likes acting, putting people in acting positions because it gives him more flexibility and there are lots of other jobs that are vacant. So, this is all a long way of saying I don't know. The job security of Chris Ray, but I think he should remain where he is. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com Preet. That's mintmobile.com Preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com Preet. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Because your site is your own. And it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. My guest this week is Zannie Minton-Bettos. She's the editor-in-chief of The Economist. Before she was promoted in 2015, she had been a journalist there since 1994 and has since been an integral part of The Economist's expanding digital presence. She is frequently a financial expert for major news outlets like CNN and MSNBC and was named one of Forbes' 100 Most Powerful Women in 2018. Today we talk about global economic health in the midst of a pandemic, journalistic anonymity, and her hopes for the future of British pubs. Zannie minton Beddows, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: It's great to join you.
0: So you are in London. How are things there amid the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Well, I am am in London. Um, They are pretty extraordinary, uh, I think, as they are across much of the world right now. Um, I'm sitting in my house in West London, where I've been for the past, you know, I guess now coming on nine weeks, we're about to produce our 10th issue of The Economist remotely. I'm incredibly fortunate compared to a lot of people, but it is... uh, it's a whole new world. You know, we're allowed out to go and exercise. Actually, we had a, a loosening of our lockdown last week, so you can now go to exercise for unlimited lengths of time and you can meet one other person in the park. Um, one other person. It's, it's one other person, but it is a, um, you know, it is remarkable. I sometimes reflect on, if you'd said to me, what, even two and a half, three months ago, that this is what I would be doing for the next 10 weeks, I think we would have all just said, no way. It's amazing how, how our lives have adapted Remarkably quickly, and I'm very conscious that you know, I'm immensely fortunate compared to a huge number of other people, and, and um, very, very conscious that you know we're lucky. Both you and I, we can do our work remotely very easily, and a lot of people can't.
0: Yeah. Wh- one question I have is: Do you do you have a sense of when you might go back to your offices, or is the discovery that so much of the work is capable of being done at home maybe people don't need to go back to the office?
1: I think both of those are true. I mean, what's interesting is we started thinking about in mid February, how would we produce The Economist remotely if we had to? And kind of when when we actually heard from, you know, I have correspondents in, in China, in Beijing, and what life was like for them, and they were under an extremely strict lockdown. And we started thinking, well, you know, we better we better figure out how to do this, luckily. And we put in place a sort of whole plan for how to do it. and And it is amazing how able we are to produce the paper remotely. Everybody, you know, my colleagues who make podcasts are, I imagine, much like you, making them all from home, often sort of hiding under their duvets with their kids next door. Uh, we're making films from home. We're producing everything, all the all the papers output from home. And now in the last sort of couple of weeks, we've been thinking about what will we do when we are able to go back. And right now, the guidance here in the UK has changed that people who are unable to work at home Um, should be actively trying to go back and work in their places of work. Now, we can work at home, so we have not yet opened the offices, but we have put into place um, the sort of processes for what we'll do when we do, how you socially distance in the office, what the maximum number of people you can have have in the office, how you can make it safe. And I imagine we conducted a, a survey of all of my colleagues and you know, some people for whom the conditions for working at home are very difficult, perhaps they have young children, mm-hmm. uh, will want to spend some time in the office. But I am i don't think we're going to all go back into the office really anytime soon. And I imagine that many of our processes uh, will stay as they are now just because they're much more efficient. But I don't think for a second that we will all remote work remotely the whole time. I think there is something very important that you get from being in an office whether it is the sort of serendipity of bumping into the colleague from a different department from which, you know, all the best journalistic ideas are born from having an impromptu conversation with someone. So I imagine we, we will have some semblance of office life. We will also, however, have much more working from home and, and we'll be much better at working remotely.
0: The way I've been thinking about it is that if you're already established in your profession and you understand the job and you've been at a particular place for a while, it's not that much of a disruption for people who are new to a business or new to a to a profession, like a young lawyer or a young journalist. The learning opportunities that are lost by not being able to just knock on someone's door and meet people in the hallway or, or grab a coffee are pretty significant. That there's kind of a difference between the, the newcomers and the established people.
1: I think that's absolutely right, and I think that one thing that I've realized is the Economist is a is a very it's a, it's a small organization. It's a very sort of tight culture, and and we are. I think we're living on the social capital that we've built up from all of us knowing each other and you're completely right it's much harder when you come into that although we've actually had a couple of people actually join us through this process and you can do it but it's much harder but I think more broadly one of it's going to be very very difficult for people who join organizations and never really get to meet the people that they're working with I think that's a, that's a whole different kind of cultural challenge to acclimatize to to the sort of to how an organization works And I think more more sort of broadly, it's an interesting question whether all of this shift to remote working improves productivity or hurts productivity. Because I think at one level, we keep reading about, you know, companies are going to, they're not going to need so much office space. We're going to reimagine the way we work, become more productive. But actually, I think that quite a lot of basic innovation and quite a lot of the way that you get new ideas and you get new products, you get better ways of working come from people brainstorming. And I think brainstorming is really hard remotely. I mean, I don't know how you found it, but we organize ourselves. We use pretty much every medium, you know, from Slack to Zoom to Google Hangouts, to the whole lot. But it is, in many ways, meetings are much more efficient because you want to get them done, because it's not a huge amount of fun spending hours and hours on the day on a Zoom call. But on the other hand, the sort of, you know the informal interaction that comes from sort of people noticing how other people's body language is, or from a, someone interrupting somebody else. That stuff is much much harder to do, and I worry that over time you will lose something from not having that.
0: Yeah, it may be that some some combination is the best. Can, can I ask you a question about the business? Yes, of course. You know it seems that a lot of journalism outfits are not are not doing so well because the advertising budgets are lower. With respect to the Economist, if it's not an impertinent question, are people reading it more, reading it less, reading it about the same? How, how are how is readership during this time?
1: So people are reading it more. Our circulation is doing really well. I think, like many news organisations, we saw a big increase in new subscribers. We've seen a big increase in digital engagement. All of those numbers are really are, are doing terrifically. That's. But at the same time, we've you know we've been hit as everybody else has by declines in advertising and our events business has been particularly hit so we've had it's a it's a tough time across the organization as a whole so in some sense it's it's a story of of you know two things on the one hand the core journalism is really valued which is great and and is doing very very well but it's a very tough time across other bits of the business
0: how do you describe what the readership is who who is who's reading The economist?
1: Well, all manner of people are reading The Economist. I mean, there's sort of, you know, often the the reputation of The Economist is that it's, it's you know, sort of global movers and shakers and so forth. And there's definitely some of that. But, you know, I, I like to use a phrase uh, to describe who I hope are our readers as being the globally curious people who, regardless of their, you know, age, their income, uh, are, are defined more by their interest in the world around them, their interest in the world beyond their borders their desire to be kind of intellectually challenged and to have, you know, what I hope is uh, authoritative, fair-minded, rigorous journalism. So I think it is probably disproportionately, it's a very global readership, it's a reasonably affluent one, you know, The Economist is not cheap, but I hope it goes much more broadly than that and that anybody who is who is globally curious would get something out of our journalism.
0: So can I tell you about a, a constituency you have that you may not be aware of? Uh, I've discussed this before on the show. I you, by the way. <laughs> Yes. No. Well, but, but I'm not talking <laughs> about me. So my, both of my sons participate in speech and debate competitions in high school. They're both in high school. And they both participate in a category called extemporaneous speaking. And in that category, I don't know if there are, if there are competitions like this in school in the UK, but here they're given a topic, a difficult political question or economic question or environmental question. And then in the course of 30 minutes, they are to prepare and memorize a speech whose length is supposed to be seven minutes delivered from memory. And in those speeches to earn points and to do well and to be graded well in the competition, among the things you have to do is to cite sources. And both of my boys will tell you that in their competitive circuit, the holy grail of references in one of their speeches is what? The Economist.
1: Well, so um, I'm there are very all these high school students Thank you.
0: <laughs> How do, you, how do you feel about that?
1: Well, I feel terrific. That's wonderful. I'm delighted uh, that they, it's sort of everything I like to hear. I, I mean, I, a very serious point. We pride ourselves on the rigor and the authority and the trustworthiness of our journalism. So I would very much hope that uh, it would be seen as one of the strongest sources. Uh, in fact, I'd be really worried if you said anything other than that.
0: I asked my son this morning before I got, I got on the phone with you, just to confirm what he has told me before about the Economist. I said, well, what's in second place? And he said, I don't know what's in second place. All I know is that The Economist is in first place. If we can get an Economist quote or cite to an article in The Economist, we feel like we can do better in our competition. So congratulations.
1: That's wonderful. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. Your son has made my day. But actually, more, I think there's a really, there's a kind of interesting, bigger point that your son's experience alludes to, which is a huge number of our readers first came across The Economist in high school or in college, read it then perhaps because they were encouraged to read it because... It was a good source to cite in a debating competition, but that's where they first came across it and then become devoted readers. And I think that that's, I hear that again and again and again. You know, people say, I've read The Economist for X years, X decades. I first came across it in high school or in in college.
0: Do you have a, a sense of what level of financial literacy exists generally in either the UK, throughout Europe, in America? Obviously, the readers of The Economist, I would guess, would tend to be more financially literate. But a worry that I've had for a while is that many, many people, even educated people, but who are not in in the economics field, don't have basic financial literacy, don't exactly understand what the Fed does, don't understand what the IMF does, don't understand what different kinds of fiscal policy versus monetary policy mean for their countries. Do, do you think about the level of financial literacy? And, and if so, what do you think about it?
1: So I think there are actually surveys which corroborate completely what you say, that the level of financial literacy is really sort of shockingly poor and really worryingly poor. And I think, you know, the the metrics that you've just used to know what the IMF does is a pretty sophisticated metric for for financial literacy. I think that there are, you know, you could use much more basic ones like knows what an interest rate is. And I think you'll find quite surprisingly, you know, large shares of people don't. So I completely agree that we have very low levels of financial literacy. We assume, and, and this is sort of separate to that, we sort of think of ourselves as writing for the interested layman, the generalist, the educated generalist, but not the specialist. So we're, I, we're very careful to avoid jargon which only, you know, the financial specialist would know, but we're not, you know, we don't shy from trying to explain difficult concepts, but we really, really try to avoid jargon. And so for me, the I'm a, sort of a, a, a wannabe economist by background, and so economics is not the one that I test this on but for me the science section is the is the real test because right. you know I right. have to be able to understand the science section and I you know I am not a scientist and so it has to be written in a way that I can understand the concepts.
0: What does the the lack of financial literacy in many countries say about our capacity for self-government then? How are people voting properly about things that are so important to how their economies are run? if there's basic financial illiteracy. I mean, we always talk about other kinds of illiteracy and lack of knowledge and, and apathy, but what about this area?
1: I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's a challenge. It's a challenge for thinking about the right kinds of economic policies, but I think it's true more broadly. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't focus hugely or disproportionately on financial literacy. I think it is true of many, many things, right? A lack of understanding, of lack of knowledge of foreign policy, a lack of knowledge of what's going on in other countries, a lack of curiosity of what's going on in other countries. That affects the framework within which governments are, sort of political backdrop against which governments are making international and foreign policy decisions. I think in the US it's interesting because, you know, the US is a continental-sized economy, can probably get away with a lesser interest in most of the rest of the world, or the average, many people can. But financial literacy is something that affects everybody's daily life. And I worry about the consequences more in terms of people's personal financial choices, people's savings behavior, people's credit card behavior, the level of debt, that kind of thing, then I, I think that I think people, even if they don't have a deep financial kind of training, have an ability to sort of judge policies. So I'm less worried about it actually in the policy context than I am in the kind of personal finance sphere.
0: Have you ever heard people refer to The Economist as elitist? And do you have a view of that term? And the one reason I ask, and I'll be transparent here, is I had David Remnick of The New Yorker on, and we discussed this idea of certain periodicals being elitist. Is The New Yorker elitist? And what what does it mean to be or not to be elitist? Well, if, if, the, if the word elitist is used, as I think most people use it nowadays, as a, as a cudgel, as something to... Uh, say that that's something that this other person is and I'm just a plain-spoken person of common sense, uh, you know, then we run away from that, you know, because we all want to be thought of as, you know. Good. Do you have a view?
1: So I think there is a view out there that The Economist is, you know, written either sort of by and for the global elite. And we're certainly, you know, associated with what a, a kind of view of the world Pro open markets, pro globalization, pro sort of free integration of economies—a world that is now increasingly questioned in some quarters. And so, you know, the world globalist is now, as you know, a sort of you know a derogatory word in many quarters. And I think we're sort of seen as part of a kind of globalist worldview. I actually would take issue with that. We are proud proud liberals in the sense of the English traditional 19th century liberal. So that's very different to the modern American term of liberal. And I'm always kind of defining my terms here. But we were founded, as you know, in 1843 to fight against the corn laws, which were high tariffs in England on corn, which kept food prices extremely high. And it was the beginning of the 19th century UK liberal movement. And that's what The Economist came from. And we are proud sort of champions of free markets, of economic freedom, of social freedom, individual freedom and always have been. I don't think of us as being a sort of an elite newspaper. I think that, as I said earlier, I want anybody who is globally curious and interested in authoritative, trustworthy journalism, which champions a particular worldview. I mean, we're, we're very unashamed about that. We do champion free markets and individual freedom. But even people who disagree with that worldview, I hope would get something out of reading The Economist, So I jibe slightly at the idea that we are elitist, if it is used synonymously with a sort of global elite. If by elitist people mean that we are rigorous and we are fact-based and we take, you know, the authority and seriousness of our journalism very seriously, then I'm, you know, then it's a badge I wear proudly.
0: There's something that's different about The Economist. Well, there are many things. It's a unique publication. But one in particular that, that I find fascinating, and if people are not familiar, they'll learn something here that all of the articles written in The Economist are anonymous. There are no bylines. And lots of people follow particular reporters at The New York Times or The Washington Post. They make decisions about whether or not they will read the article based on who has written the article. Um, I had George Packer of The Atlantic and formerly of The New Yorker on. And we talked about some of these issues of, in his mind, a worry that people will only read Uh, an article by someone if they first understand what group that writer belongs to. And that writers are not supposed to belong to groups. They're supposed to be writing independently, not as representatives. We want the shorthand of being able to just know, well, what's this guy's or this gal's orientation? Where are they coming from? And therefore, what do I think of what they're about to say? It makes life easier. You can already make up your mind, even before you've read it, once you know who's written it and what stripe they are. Could you explain the logic and philosophy behind No Bylines?
1: Yeah. So when we were founded back in 1843, it was a much more normal practice for newspaper articles to be unsigned. And we were very much similar to, to other publications at that time. But we've essentially kept that, whereas um, now, as you say, we're, we're un- almost unique. I think we are unique in being a publication where virtually everything is unsigned. There are actually what we call special reports, which are kind of long 12,000 word articles, which appear every other week usually, which people labor on for six or seven weeks, one individual, and they do get in very small print <laughs> their name uh, on those special reports. But but most things are, as you say, unsigned. And there are there are really... Several reasons for it. But one, the main one is that we we are very much a paper that infuses and has a, a very sort of strong worldview, the worldview of 19th century English liberalism, the belief in free markets and, and individual freedom. We have that view, particularly in our leader columns, which are our editorials at the front, but also actually many of our articles, though you know, they're rigorous, they're fact-based, but they're full of opinion. And that opinion is the economist's opinion rather than the opinion of the individual writer. And that's not to say that there are sort of differences of nuance. Of course there are. But there is a sense of this is a product of the sort of the economist worldview. And actually, in a more sort of kind of practical and prosaic way, we have a very cooperative, quite heavily edited, but more importantly, sort of cooperative and uh, culture, which is not a culture of individual star reporters so much as a group of incredibly talented people working together. Now that said, in today's environment of social media, which is the exact opposite of the economist right, it's individual, it's personalized. We don't try and hide who economist writers are. You know, they have their own Twitter handles, we have economist films where people appear in, we have podcasts and obviously people have voices. You, know, you you're, you're hearing me now. And it's not that we don't want people to know who's done the writing. I'm delighted that my colleagues are, are well-known, but it is much more a sense that we are producing that something that is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a kind of collective effort to produce The Economist rather than a constellation of individual people and in individual articles.
0: But does that mean sort of that, that everyone at The Economist, more or less, generally speaking, agrees with all of the content? I mean, that, that's not the case at a lot of newspapers.
1: No, it's absolutely not. And in fact, we have we have a kind of quite infamous uh, Monday morning editorial meeting where anybody in the organization can come to. This week's meeting has, you know, they're now done by Zoom, but there are, you know, somewhere between 100 and 200 people on the Zoom call. We discuss what what's going to go in the paper. And we particularly discuss the leaders, which are the, you know, the, the five articles at the beginning that are essentially laying out the paper's view that are pure opinion. And anybody can pitch one, whether it's, you know, the intern that started last week or someone who was there for 25 years. And anybody can weigh in on the argument. And we have, were you at one of those, you'd know that there are plenty of different views. There are lots of people who disagree on lots of things, but we, you know, we believe very strongly in the sort of power of debate. And we, we probably have the equivalent of what your son has, you know, we have a we have a big and, and uh, kind of engaging debate. And then at the end of it, we either end up agreeing, or if we don't, you know, that's one of the, one of the, I guess, one of the responsibilities I have, you know, we, we then lay out what our, what a leader line is going to be. But, No, there are lots of, certainly lots of, you know, small difference of opinion and even quite big ones. There are plenty of my colleagues who don't agree with lots of things that are written in the paper every week. Having said that, I suspect if you were a, um, you know, someone who believed in protectionism and didn't believe in, you know, sort of individual freedom and was a, you know, didn't believe in any of the basic positions that The Economist holds dear, I think you would find it quite hard to work here.
0: You don't have many Marxists.
1: I don't have, don't think so. Not real ones. I might have people
0: who say they are. Okay. So speaking of controversy and disagreement, and you've already mentioned this issue of the terms globalist and globalism being bad words for some people. A million years ago, back in the time of live events, uh, back in September of 2018, at a festival sponsored by The Economist, you interviewed, you invited to, to, to be interviewed and then did interview Steve Bannon, who helped Donald Trump get elected. And and one of the reasons I asked, hearkening back to an interview I did with David Remnick of The New Yorker, The New Yorker also had planned to, to have an interview with Steve Bannon by also the, the head of the magazine. And there was such a controversy and uproar that David Remnick disinvited Steve Bannon, I believe at the beginning of September of 2018. Did you consider that had you done it all over again? you might not have invited him or only invited him once you laid the groundwork. I've, con- I've, I've turned this snow globe upside down and, and forwards. Of course, right. I've considered so, it backwards and but, forwards. But then, but then once you invited him, was there I some s- loss to the capitulation? Probably. There was some, I guess, uh, discord when you announced that you would be interviewing Steve Bannon. And the day after the New Yorker rescinded the invitation, you confirmed that your event would go forward. What was your thinking in inviting Steve Bannon? And how did you deal with the disagreement over that?
1: So the reason we were holding this festival, it was called the Open Future Festival, was to mark our 175th anniversary. And uh, what we were trying to do in that day of debate was to have a conversation about what liberalism, free markets, and open societies should look like in the 21st century. What What should a kind of modern day economist be championing? And we wanted to do that by engaging our critics, engaging people with a very different worldview, as well as people who shared our worldview. And Steve Bannon was, to my mind, an immensely articulate proponent of a worldview that is completely antithetical to the economists. But I felt very strongly that it was important to engage people with a very different worldview, because otherwise, you've got a whole load of like minded people in an echo chamber. And that's not how you're going to genuinely. Um, make progress. And whether we like it or not, the kind of worldview that he espouses and epitomizes is one that is held by a considerable number of people on both sides of the Atlantic, whether it is Donald Trump supporters or whether it was a certain genre of Brexit supporters here, or indeed people on the far right in the European Union. And so it seemed to me that engaging with that worldview was important. Now, I got a lot of flack for that uh, for various reasons, a lot of people who felt that, you know, it was giving a platform to some Body who was completely beyond the pale, I disagreed with that. It seemed to me that somebody who had been working in the White House was whether we liked them or not, and as sort of a substantial figure, a substantial enough figure to want to engage with or need to engage with. And so that's why I did it, and um, I don't regret it at all. I think that I genuinely believe that it's really, really important to engage with people who have a different worldview than you. And that one of the things that I lament nowadays on both sides of the atlantic is an increasing unwillingness to do that and that the sort of the rise of a if you will a kind of no platforming culture is one where i think there are some serious downsides i mean liberals in the english sense if they're in favor of anything they're in favor of they believe in the power of debate of reasoned argument and i think debate and reasoned argument is the way forward. And you need to engage with people who have a different worldview than you. And whether or not you're convinced by them or not convinced by them, the way to have sort of progress is to have that kind of, and to engage in that kind of discussion. So although it was extremely, it was a kind of painful episode. You know, we had very, we had several people drop out who were angry at this decision, who didn't want to take part in the conference as a result, which I really lament. I still think it was the right thing to do. And I, I continue to believe that it's incredibly important for liberals, and I'm i am going to keep having to hark to the English liberals, but for liberals broadly, for people who believe in, in making progress in society to engage with all manner of other people in serious and recent debate. And that's what we were trying to do there.
0: Do you think then that the New Yorker made a mistake by disinviting Steve Bannon?
1: No, I'm, I think every publication has to make its own decision and every you know organization organizing a, a, an event has a different set of considerations. So I'm not in any way criticizing others for what they decide to do. I just thought it was very important for what we wanted to do, particularly at an event that was asking, what should liberalism be in the 21st century? Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
0: Can we now talk a little bit more about the pandemic? And obviously, you know, Americans, it's, it's interesting to me that until people started dying in America, we were watching our television uh, news and paying attention to various countries as the pandemic would hit a particular country, Italy, China, obviously first, and then other countries. And then once it hit the United States, sort of as a general matter, we've only been paying attention to what's happening in America. It's a little bit harder to find out what's going on in other countries, and that is natural. People have parochial interest. From your perspective, In the UK, which countries do you think handled the pandemic well, which did not? And if you have a theory about why that might be, I'd love it if you'd share it with us.
1: So I think in some ways, we're going to be debating this for decades hence. Um, My sort of superficial answer, which won't surprise you, is that you can see a number of countries in in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, Taiwan, Springs to mind, South Korea, Singapore to a degree, have handled it very well. They had experience of SARS. Uh, they had experience of this kind of thing before. They, as a result, had processes in place, particularly contact tracing. They had a playbook. They knew what to do. Within Europe, you know, Germany is often cited as an example of a country that uh, has handled it particularly well. I would caution. I think it's a little early to, to sort of decide all of this yet, because we are. I mean, I, I hope that we are. You know, towards the end of it, but and, and I'm not suggesting for a second this is you know we're going to see a repeat of it. But if you look at 1918 and the Spanish filu, you know there were clearly second waves. I'm not going to say anything that's terribly surprising. It's the usual suspects: it's understanding, taking the science seriously, having a, a sort of technocratic approach and a political system that sort of early on sees the importance and the urgency of acting and acting in a consistent manner. But I think more than anything else it's probably having had experience of it, which is the reason that those countries in those democracies or, or near democracies did particularly well
0: there's a parallel debate going on where some people are suggesting that you know it's not the nature of the governmental system that's putting aside experience and that's a good point but it's not necessarily the, the nature of the political system that you know was reacting to the pandemic, but the nature of the leadership and some people have pointed out and I don't know if this is true in every instance but the more populist the government, the less well they handle the pandemic do you, do you see anything in that any truth in that
1: uh, i mean I, it may well be true but i think there are enormous number of other things that i would want to look at too you know for example we're beginning to see patterns in the kinds of people that are you know most vulnerable so quite a lot depends on your sort of prior demographic considerations you know italy was particularly hard hit both because it has a relatively old population and because there is sort of multi generations living together it depends on the nature of your health system. I mean, I think the U.S. health system is um, not optimized to deal with a pandemic. I mean, a fee-for-service, for-profit system has, you know, many advantages, um, but it is not optimized for this. It's not clear yet whether a sort of more central government or a federal structure does better. I think we're going to sort of see all of that coming out. So I'm not denying that. You know, y- you're you're probably right. I mean, if you look at Brazil, it seems to me to be Exhibit A of uh, of a leadership undermining its country's response. But I think there are an awful lot of factors that will play into how well or how badly countries did. And so, you know, I I think that the nature of political leadership, America, if you look at the U.S. and you look at the lack of trust in government relative to many other countries, if you look at the degree of political polarization, I'm sure all of that hasn't helped.
0: I'm going to throw one more theory at you about this because I found it interesting. The New York Times suggested in a story that people have noticed that one thing that may be a feature of countries that did well and this is true in taiwan which you mentioned germany which you mentioned also new zealand and also finland
1: i know where you're going is, is
0: what, do they, what do they Oh, all right here's a quiz <laughs> what do they all have in common
1: they all have female political leaders
0: they all have female political leaders and you know some people have speculated that maybe those leaders are a little bit more open-minded more capable of showing empathy uh, better at humility what do you what do you make of those arguments
1: of course, I'm gonna say that's a huge fact. I know yeah, there may be something to that. What I really would like to see, and uh I'm I'm hoping we will do some of this too, is I'd like to see a kind of a really detailed set of cross-country comparisons that try and look at various factors, what is sort of underlying, you know, pre-pandemic demographic considerations. Sort of what you might call structural considerations, whether it's the structure of the healthcare system, the structure of government as a federal system, is it not? The nature of political leadership, the degree of trust in government. You know, we had an interesting piece a few weeks ago which looked at countries in Europe where paradoxically low trust countries have actually done relatively better than you would have expected. You know, Eastern European countries where there's a, not a low load of trust in government actually have done surprisingly well. I think all of these are really interesting theories, but Rather than leaping on the bandwagon of grasping onto a particular theory, I'd really love a sort of detailed, dispassionate, going through factor by factor and looking at different countries on those. And, and I'd also caution that, you know, it's not over yet. Can,
0: can I mention another country we haven't talked about yet? I don't know if you have any any insider reaction, but the nation of my birth, India, has you know reacted fairly broadly with a huge national lockdown that I don't think a lot of people would have expected. And so far, not a high rate of cases or deaths. Any reaction to that?
1: Well, but uh, but an absolutely, you know, dramatically high economic cost and uh, huge, huge um, negative consequences for the economy and for an awful lot of vulnerable people in it. And I think one of the things that we're going through some various stages in this now. And the first one, what strikes me, if you look back over the last nine weeks, it is amazing that, you know, Billions of people in the world, from India to the United States, to most of Europe, to an awful lot of Asia, were put under lockdown. The same policy was essentially applied across the world. And and rightly so, because in the short term, when cases were rising exponentially, that's the only way we know of flattening the curve, to use the jargon, of getting the the rate of infection down. And so everybody did it and and it was, was absolutely the right thing to do. Now I think we're gradually emerging to a much more complicated phase, which is how do you ease those how do you, lockdowns? How do you come out of them? How do you balance the damage that is being done to the economy? And we're seeing it. you know We're seeing a global economy in its worst downturn since the Great Depression. This is calamitous economic consequences, which are way, way, way tougher if you are a poor person in India than if you're in a, in a rich country where you don't have the social safety nets, where you don't have the ability to have the scale of fiscal support that we've seen in the West. You know, even in the West, it's really, really hard. Look at the scale of, you know, unemployment has soared in the US. Look at the scale, you know, the numbers of, of, of companies that are going bust. This is, a, this is a huge economic price we're paying. And so I think the question now is, how do you going forward balance those two? You need to prevent a return to an exponential rise in in the pandemic. We don't yet have a vaccine. We don't have an effective treatment. It doesn't look like we're going to get one for a while. But we can't have our economies in the deep freeze, completely shut down for the next year. And so how do you, going forward, balance those two? And I think we're seeing countries taking different paths on that. And that's going to be the area where I think the whole question of how do you, the question of how you've handled it thus far has been how quickly do you impose your lockdown? How good were you at getting protective equipment? How good was your contact tracing? How, you know, they were sort of medical criteria. Now, I think going forward, it's it's also how do you support your economy? How much are you able to do that? What do you open up in what way? And how do you balance those two outcomes?
0: Do you think there's any evidence to suggest that the countries that did well thus far in handling the medical aspects of this are also the ones that are going to do better on on reopening and fixing their economies, or are those two distinct and separate?
1: I think it's going to be really interesting to see. You know, my prior would be that countries which have prided, sort of, which have made sensible, technocratically based decisions thus far are likely to do that going forward. But countries are also in a very different position. You know, there are countries in Africa that have had lots of experience, particularly with Ebola, but even before with other infectious diseases that have handled the medical side of this remarkably well, that have incredible, you know, ability to do contract tracing, again, because they've had experience of it, it, but who don't have the capacity to do the enormous, you know, stimulus and support that we have been able to do in Europe or the US has been able to do. And so there are quite different constraints on countries when you're looking at the economic stuff relative to the health stuff.
0: So... With respect to, let's say, Europe and the US, are there particular economic strategies that you think would serve those countries well versus others in the coming year?
1: Yeah, I think the interesting, there are some interesting challenges that are going to come up. I mean, right now on both sides of the Atlantic, we have rightly thrown, you know, support at the economy, whether it is the central banks, you know, the Federal Reserve essentially pulling out all the stops, ditto the Bank of England, to a slightly lesser degree, but nonetheless, to a huge degree, the European Central Bank. So central bankers are absolutely throwing the book at it, and we've had enormous fiscal support from Washington, here in the UK, even in many countries in Europe. So the question now is, what do you do going forward? And one interesting question is, how long do you maintain support for workers, and in what way? So in the UK, and there have been sort of interestingly different strategies on both sides of the Atlantic. In the US, as you know, millions of workers have been furloughed. The unemployment uh, ranks have shot up, but the generosity of unemployment assistance has been increased quite substantially. Um, although it hasn't, a lot of people haven't been able to get it yet. But put aside for a second those very real sort of practical difficulties, the idea was to really cushion and support um, people through unemployment insurance. In Britain, the the strategy was somewhat different, where the state is paying. of the wages of furloughed workers who are still attached to their company. They're not working, but the state is paying 80% of their wages. And those two strategies in the very short term have essentially a somewhat similar effect. But over time, they have a different effect. Whereas in the US, unemployed workers can and presumably will go off at some point and try and find different jobs. In the UK, they are still attached to their company. Now, if we think that the economy is going to come back and be very much, you know, the same as it was two and a half months ago, the sort of pre-COVID economy, then that strategy makes sense. But I think what's becoming increasingly clear, and this gets to where we started our conversation, I don't think the post-COVID economy is going to be the same as the pre-COVID economy. Not only is it going to be weaker for longer than we thought, it's going to be in, in many areas a very different kind of economy. So whether it is transportation or the hospitality sector, there are going to be quite significant parts of the economy that are going to take a long time to recover or indeed may never recover to what they were before and that means that and this gets into sort of economist jargon but it basically means that you know resources have to shift from one bit of an economy to another so people who worked in you know in the UK let's take pubs quintessential british british uh, <laughs> invention i'm sure you've been to lots of them you know i cannot see how no the business model <laughs> the business model of british pubs is sustainable in a world where you have to keep 2 meters away from someone or even 1 meter and actually there was a study i think i saw which looked at it in the US and it it suggested that if Americans choose to avoid person-to-person proximity of an arm's length or less, then occupations worth 10% of national output will be unviable. I mean, that's a big transformation. And it's something that we... um, we put a couple of weeks ago, we put on the cover, uh, you might have seen it, we called it the 90% economy. The 90% economy is an economy that we think the, the world post-COVID will be. And it's an economy which is sort of back to normal, but it's fallen short of normal. And it's it's fundamentally different in ways than the pre-COVID economy was. And, and if, if we're right about that, then there are millions of people whose pre-COVID jobs simply won't exist and who need to shift into new jobs in new bits of the economy. And so the, the the question then turns to what is the kind of public policy that supports those people, but also encourages that transformation into new jobs in new growing parts of the economy and and kind of preserving today's jobs in ASPIC is not going to be the way to do that.
0: Is there a feeling on the part of a lot of people, unlike the financial crash of 2008, where I think people assume that it takes a while to recover from something that that was structural in the economy. And here, you know, in many, many places, people don't believe that there was a structural problem. The economy was booming in the US, low unemployment, high GDP, and a good bit of growth. Do people wrongly assume, and I wonder what the policy implications are of this, that because COVID wrecked the economy so quickly, that it can just as quickly when there's a vaccine, the economy will come roaring back. And that's sort of the rhetoric of the president. Is there any truth to that? And if not, how dangerous is that kind of thinking?
1: I think that there are a lot of people who believe that the economy is going to come roaring back. And it's frankly the only way that I can make sense of what's going on on Wall Street is that there must be a lot of people believing that um, the economy will come roaring back or and or there will be you know continued massive fiscal and monetary support to sustain it. Because otherwise, share prices and what's happened to share prices and the, the difference between the bounce back that you've seen on Wall Street relative to what's actually going on in the real economy right. are kind of hard to understand. And I suspect that that is going to gradually become clearer that bits of the economy will come roaring back, but many bits won't. And that I, I, you know, for the reasons we've just talked about, I don't think the post-COVID world is going to be identical to the pre-COVID world. So there are some industries, you know, the big tech companies, the Amazons of this world that have done extremely well, that, you know, Zoom, video conferencing, there are definitely areas that have done immensely well. But there are many other sectors, and I would put travel, I would put tourism, I would put hospitality in into a commercial real estate. You can think of many more sectors where the world that we are moving into is not going to be the same as the world before COVID, because it's going to take a while until we get a vaccine. Even when we get a vaccine, it's going to take longer for everybody to be vaccinated. So for us to put this kind of definitively behind us is going to take you know, months, years. During that time, people are going to be worried. People are scared. People don't want to get this. So people's behavior is going to change. If you look at what's going on in China, where you know, the rate of new cases is, is now, apart from a, there's a new outbreak in the Northeast, but, but broadly relatively low. You know The country's effectively sealed off to foreigners. You want to go there, you have to spend two weeks in complete quarantine if you can get in at all. And if you look at... Domestic spending in China, is something down. That discretionary consumer spending is down, I think, by forty percent. Hotel stays are still only a third of normal ones. People are not going back to the way of life they had before. Plus, they're going to be many people are going to be much more indebted. They're going to be uncertain about their jobs. So, I think it's it's not going to be a V V-shaped roar back to where we were. Now, it's it's very different to the financial crisis because the financial crisis was a very different phenomenon. It was. Over indebtedness, particularly the housing crash, people had negative equity. They, you know, there was a, a balance sheet problem. It's it's a different kind of problem now, but nonetheless, it is one that I think won't mean that we're going back in a sort of traditional, very rapid V shape to the same world we had before.
0: Right. I'm going to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, and I think this um, divergence is much more pronounced now. The divergence between what's going on on Wall Street, and what's going on otherwise in the economy. And people keep reminding us that the stock market is not the economy. And yet there are politicians when the stock market is doing well, like the president, who basically uses it as a substitute for the economy. Is there anything more you can you can say to explain to people why it is the case that the stock market is not the economy and is not necessarily an accurate reflection of how the economy is doing?
1: Well, the stock market is, I guess, investors best guess of where, you know, the future stream of companies' profits is gonna go, discounted back to you know, today. And I think that that's affected both by the expectations of tomorrow's profits, it's also affected by what people think the interest rate is going to be, and thus what monetary policy is going to be. And part of what's going on now is a sort of reflection of the enormous amount of stimulus that's being put in, um, particularly by the Federal Reserve. That's some of what's going on in, in financial markets. Some of it is also, I think, a sense that Perhaps there's some of this, you know, rose tintedness that we've just been talking about. But what worries me is that I do think the gap between the two is hard to sustain. And while it is true that, you know, stock markets anticipate where the economy is going to go. So it's okay to have a gap between the awfulness of today's statistics, which reflect what happened yesterday in the real economy and a much more optimistic stock market. I, I, I'm not at all sure that we're going to see big improvement for the reasons we've just talked about of what's happening in the real economy. But but what worries me that the scale of that gap is so big that I think there's some kind of really interesting politics around that. I think to talk about the economy doing well or for to try and gauge the health of the economy from the stock market when you know millions and millions of people are still losing their jobs, when the unemployment rate is in double-digit figures, and when... The people who've been hit hardest by COVID are people at the bottom of the income ladder, are people who are less skilled, who tend to be the people who work in labor-intensive sectors, who work in, you know, they are the cleaners in the hotels. They are the staff at the restaurants. They are the people who are on the front lines who have been hit the hardest. That's a very dangerous gap, I think, to have a sort of in a country between if you have a stock market that's booming. And disproportionately, stocks, of course, are owned by wealthier people. And you have a a real economy that is hurting, and the people who are hurting most in it are the less skilled. That, to me, is not a recipe for social harmony.
0: I want to talk about what the rest of the world thinks about the U.S., most specifically first. What's the view, you think, generally speaking, from Europe and, and other places about America's handling of the pandemic?
1: So I think... I guess my first point would be something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is that I think people are looking at the pandemic increasingly and overwhelmingly through a national prism. So most of the debate in the UK is about how Boris Johnson is handling the pandemic, um, not about how any other political leader is doing it. People are very much focused on what's going on in the here and now in their own country, for understandable reasons. Right? It's it's a huge shock. It's a scary shock. And it is one where your own personal outlook is determined by what your government does. So that sort of, for one, I think it's not a, a sort of huge focus. That said, I think what has struck many people outside the U.S. is how absent the U.S. has been in terms of global leadership. For the entire post-war period, it's almost a truism to say it, but the U.S. was the leader of the international order. The U.S. was the kind of global hegemon. The U.S. was the country that you that sort of people turned to for natural leadership. And, you know, even during the Ebola crisis, there was a sort of greater sense of U.S. leadership. And this time it's been strikingly absent, whether in the international economic sphere, whether in the health sphere. There was a conference about developing a global vaccine organized by the British a few days ago, and I don't think the U.S. even took part. But not only is the U.S. not showing international leadership, which in some way is consistent with what's been happening over the last couple of years. It's worse than that because there is a sort of huge, a dangerous spat. Worse than a spat, the sort of worst relationship between the U.S. and China that we've had in decades, and it's just getting worse. And the you know, on both sides, you know, China deserves opprobrium for having covered up the pandemic to start with, absolutely. But the degree to which that relationship has deteriorated and we are, you know, heading to something that is sort of an ever more dangerous schism between those two powers. Makes, I think, the international geopolitics of this even more worrying than it would otherwise be. So it's not just that the U.S. is absent, it's that the U.S. is absent from multilateral global leadership and is engaged in a really scary fight with the world's sort of aspirant superpower. And you see that in the argument about the World Health Organization, you see it in any number of areas. And so I think for the you know most of the rest of the world, it's less about. I think the in, within the United States, there is understandably and rightly a you know huge debate going on about how the administration has handled the pandemic within the United States, and there's a, a huge amount being written about that. It's a very polarized country, the US, and was before the pandemic, and so it's not at all surprising that the pandemic is viewed through partisan polarized political prism. But for the rest of the world outside, it's less about how the administration and how the president has behaved as regards the pandemic within the US, although, you know, of course, there are comments that he's made that have kind of raised eyebrows around the whole world. Of course there are. But actually, I think the big focus for the rest of the world is more that the United States is not showing, displaying the kind of global leadership that, that it might have done in decades past.
0: So then here's the follow-up question. What, if anything, is going to happen to fill that gap in American leadership?
1: Well, I don't know. You tell me. Um, you're, that's much <laughs> more your bailiwick than mine. But I would think that some of these changes are changes that will outlast this president. I mean, I think the relationship between the US and China, which I suspect is the single most important relationship of the 21st century, is going to do more to define what the next few decades are like than anything else. We are not going to make significant progress on climate change without those two countries taking a lead. We're not going to deal with the consequences of this pandemic, let alone help prepare for the next one, without those two countries working together. They're the two biggest economies in the world. We're not going to have any kind of sense of global trade rules without them working together. So on any number of fronts, it's immensely important that these two rivalrous countries are able to work together. And yet I don't see that happening. I think there is a suspicion of China and a sense of China as a sort of geopolitical rival, which is, you know. Don't get me wrong, it's based on some perfectly understandable reasons. I'm not I'm not criticizing it, but I think it is a view that is shared in both parties, actually. It's now a bipartisan view in the United States, which makes me think that I'd be surprised if there was a sort of significantly different strategic approach. The tone may be different, but a significantly different strategic approach, regardless of what party was in power.
0: Zannie Minton-Bettos, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for your work. And my boys, thank you also.
1: Thank you. Great to talk to you.
0: The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the stay tuned bonus material with Zanny Minton-Bettos and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash slash insider. So folks, I want to end the program this week talking about voting. First, as you may have heard, stay tuned with Preet, this podcast that you listen to, won the People's Voice Webby Award, which is a you know important award for podcasts and radio and other things, for Best News and Politics Podcast. I want to thank all of you for supporting the show, listening to the show, writing in, And voting, it's a great honor, and I'm very gratified not only for your support, but for the spectacular team we have here on Stay Tuned. You don't hear their voices, but you hear their names and their credits at the end of every show, and we couldn't do it without having that kind of a team. Now, much more importantly, with respect to voting, we have perhaps the most important election of our lifetimes coming up. I know they say that in every election, but this time it is in fact clearly true. And we're gonna see a lot of fighting about elections and about voting and the nature of voting. We've talked on this show and on the Insider podcast about the skirmishes in Wisconsin, where it was a back and forth about whether or not people could vote by absentee ballot, whether they got their absentee ballots in on time. And some people are going to be denied the franchise unless these court battles go the right way. Just this morning, and I'm taping this on Wednesday, May 20th, Donald Trump posted a fairly outrageous tweet that has to do with this issue, voting. He posted breaking. Michigan sends absentee ballots to 7.7 million people ahead of primaries and the general election. This was done illegally and without authorization by a rogue secretary of state. I will ask to hold up funding to Michigan if they want to go down this voter fraud path. That is a crazy tweet in a pantheon of crazy tweets. Basically, every sentence is false. Michigan did not send absentee ballots to 7.7 million people. Michigan sent applications for absentee ballots. It was not done illegally. It was not done without authorization. And this threat to hold up funding for Michigan, if they do something that is otherwise authorized, is on its face unconstitutional. So that's the kind of thing that we're in store for. And it's going to happen in a lot of different states. States that are known to be blue, known to be red, known to be purple, and there may be in transition. One state in which there was a positive ruling this week is Texas. On Tuesday, a Texas federal court judge ruled to expand absentee voting to anyone concerned about getting COVID-19 at the voting booths, regardless of age. Before that, mail-in ballots were reserved only for those over the age of 65. In his ruling, U.S. District Judge Fred Beery of the Western District of Texas sided with the individual Texas voters in the Texas Democratic Party. They were the plaintiffs in this case. To ensure that all people would be able to cast their vote during this unusual election cycle. Now, ordinarily, I don't read from court opinions, although we do sometimes, but Judge Beery's order in this case is striking, and so I want to share a little bit of it with you today before we leave. After he opens his opinion with a quote from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, he writes this 244 years on, Americans now seek life without fear of pandemic, liberty to choose their leaders in an environment free of disease, and the pursuit of happiness without undue restrictions. Of the 3,929,214 original Americans, we the people, as the new sovereign with the power to prevent a new despot, belonged in the hands of only 235,753 white males who owned property. Over time, the franchise grew to include all white males, African American men, and women. Without that evolving expansion, we the people are mere words on 200 year old parchment. There are some among us who would, if they could, nullify those aspirational ideas to return to the not-so-halcyon and not-so-thrilling days of yesteryear of the divine right of kings, trading our birthright as a sovereign people for a modern mess of governing pottage in the hands of a few and forfeiting the vision of America as a shining city upon a hill. End quote. Now, isn't that something? With Judge Beery's powerful and eloquent words in mind, remember to vote, remember to register to vote, and don't let anyone take your right away. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Zanny Minton-Bettos. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-Preet. Or you can send an email to Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord. Noah Azalai and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.